Welcome to the 13 Days of X-Men, Monkey Off My Backlog's second annual holiday limited series. I'm your host, Sam, and with me is the kitty to my rogue, don't glare at me like that, Tessa. Hello! Joining us today is friend of the pod, Elise. Hello! Hi! Last year, because movie marathons are a holiday tradition for us, we watched nine Fast and Furious movies and released nine podcast episodes over nine days. Because we are gluttons for punishment, we're raising the stakes by watching the 13 movies in the Fox X-Men series. Today, we're talking about X-Men, Days of Future Past, the movie where they attempt to fix the timeline. But before we talk about time travel, Elise, what are you looking forward to this holiday season? So I am very much looking forward to some time off of work. (laughs) Every year, my aunt has a fun Hanukkah party that we call Latka Fest, and we all make a ton of latkes. We usually have like bagels and cream cheese and like Jewish jelly. And there's always swag. Like every year I come home with um, like a new travel mug that says Latka Fest and the year. Um, last year, even though we didn't have the party, my aunt sent um, Latka Fest hand sanitizer to everyone. Um, it was very cute. <laughs> Just your in the aunt, mail. Your aunt sounds amazing. Like she gives out swag. <laughs> Yeah, so she works at, like, a chocolate company, and so she has, like, there's, like, a good graphics department because you can get, like, personalized chocolate. Like, I think my sister had them at her wedding with, like, her and her husband's name on them. It was very cute. But, yes, it's a fun party. Elise, will you also describe the wonderful Hanukkah-themed sweater that you are wearing? Oh, yes. (laughs) Since podcasting is a visual medium. Yes. Um. So it is the like body of it is dark blue and the arms are kind of like a lighter blue and it has like a, you know, like a holiday sweater, snowflakey looking vibe to it. But on the front of the sweater is a latka that has arms and legs and has hearts all around it. And then it says live, laugh, latka underneath it. Perfect. It's perfect. I love it. Since you weren't with us last year, we've been asking this question. Well, we've been asking it of people who were with us last year and people who weren't with us last year. But are there any holiday movies or holiday pop culture that you return to every year or that you're planning on watching this year? What's sort of the thing for your family? As a family, like, so my family doesn't celebrate Christmas. But that doesn't mean we don't have Christmas traditions. So we usually will go to the movie theater on Christmas. But the years that we haven't, we would do like a Lord of the Rings marathon or something like that. But it's pretty much not Christmas time in this in like my family. If you haven't watched Die Hard for me or like Love Actually for my like the family as a whole, which I is a movie I like have a lot of problems with but i still go back to it every year do you want to ask your love actually question Mm. that you ask yep sure as we all know love actually is the most accurate rorschach test ever (laughs) so i would like for you to rank your top three love actually storylines oh my gosh they're all kind of horrible i don't make the rules 
<laughs> no, I know, but I feel like I'm just like ranking like the. This is like the hardest question I've ever been asked in my entire <laughs> life. Your answers will tell us about your psyche. They will. <laughs> they will. Uh, I'm. This is where I'm like I'm Alan. Alan Rickman rising. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Alan Rickman is in both of my um Christmas movies. Everyone's kind of horrible in this. Who are who are the least horrible or most enjoyable horrible? The Colin Firth storyline is ridiculous, and but not too horrible except for at the end. All the fa- there's a lot of fat phobia that's in that one. I know this is kind of weird because they like just got married, but I kind of don't hate the Kira Knightley storyline. <laughs> With the, like, I'm just, like, waiting for Sam to tell me how horrible of a person I am based on my answer. I just want you to know, Sam. Uh, 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 I wasn't going to say your storylines. <laughs> I was just going to say. Uh, 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 okay. Okay. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> um, they're all so sad. I get really upset about Laura Linney. Like, I don't know. I just, like, I really can't answer this. They're all terrible. Uh, okay. But but you've you've identified two. I need to hear one more. Least terrible, most hilariously terrible, whatever. And we've got two. Now we need a last one. I love Chris Marshall, but like his is like weird and like all American girls are slutty or whatever vibes. <sighs> I was not prepared for this. My other favorite. Okay, nope. I figured it out. My other favorite love story in that movie is um, between Emma Thompson and Joni Mitchell. Hmm. I like that. That's probably the best one of the whole movie. That's quite interesting. What does it say about me? I don't know. You kind of loopholed your way out of it. Oh, I'm so excited. I like a loophole. Because, fun fact, this is a pass-fail test. Oh. Yeah, but you loopholed it. Can you tell me if I said, if I had said something that would have set off like uh, the fail like what would i have what would i've had to have say to like completely fail this uh you would have put one st- part- you would have put one particular storyline in your top 3 that is that is my theory like the you know the ones that you select the ones that you think about i really think say a lot about you and those who pick one particular storyline as their favorite boy it says a lot about them but not Good. I've never been more curious in my entire life. Well, the whole thing is you, if you-, <laughs> you picked it, but you loopholed your way out of it by giving an explanation that I've never heard before. Mm, interesting. So I think we'll just leave it there. Cool. On that note, let's talk about another movie where a lot of things happen. So Days of Future Past, right? All right, Tessa, this is your film series. I know you don't want to own it, but you do love the X-Men. So in the future, there will be robots. Would you like to talk about that a little bit? They're not robots. They're sentinels. Whatever. (laughs) Yeah. So this is based on the Days of Future Past, which is from the Uncanny X-Men comics from 142 and 143, I believe. I have it written down somewhere. This storyline is, it's probably one of the most famous storylines of the comics. And I know that when they announced that they were doing it, people were really excited, especially because they were going to be crossing the old cast of the X-Men with the newer cast from X-Men First Class. 
There was a lot of hype around it. But this storyline, it starts in a really dark place. It starts in a future, which I believe is 2032. Is that what we established? Basically, we get a vision of the future in which Magneto was completely right. They built these sentinels, which can detect mutants and destroy mutants, and they've rounded up the mutants that they haven't killed and put them in concentration camps. Pretty bleak. Before we get into the 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 time travelness of it or the seventiesness of it, Elise, what did you think about these these opening scenes in the film? I thought that the scene where they were kind of like I didn't know what to call it, but in my notes I said blooping around. <laughs> I thought that was really cool. I really found it fun. Um Rewatching this movie, I didn't feel like anything that was happening in it was super original from like other movies I had seen. Um, but I still liked the whole vibe. It's dark, they're blooping around a little bit, and it also pondered whether the future is really set. Like that was I like that opening also. What did you think of the Sentinels and the future that they're sort of presenting us with here? It's so funny because when someone says Sentinels, my first thought is the Matrix. Obviously, those look a little bit different from the ones in the Matrix, but I still felt like it was a similar like machine future. It was really, I kind of, I know they explained it, but I like didn't really understand how the Sentinels change to like also getting people that are going to have mutant children. Like that was, I don't know evolution i guess i kind of didn't think too much about the sentinels i this is like one of those movie types where i kind of just turned my brain off and was like okay this is what they're presenting me with so i didn't really question that this was what was happening in the future yeah i should also say that i'm not i i actually like i was going to read it and then i decided that i i was going to wait until we were done with this so that i could be the non-reader on the, on on the, the podcast. podcast. I guess we should have asked <laughs> you about that first. What is your experience with X-Men? My f- first experience with X-Men is um, ev- it getting mentioned in every Kevin Smith movie ever. But next, it's the, the these Fox movies. I probably saw most of them in the theater when they came out, just because I was like, it was popular and it was looked cool and everything. Um, I very much loved x-men first class i love james mcavoy so yeah i i was pretty excited i think i saw this in the theater but i was pretty excited to see it um i've probably seen it about four times now but this is the first time i've watched this version of it i guess the only other thing i would say is that the sentinels are just very iconic villains i mean you don't have to have read the comic books to really get them they are like what you said they're just they're machines that track down mutants. That's they're that's all you really need to know, but just as far as like sci-fi comic book villains, they're definitely up there. As we know from yesterday's revelation, I don't really care about action scenes and action movies. <laughs> I just want to be entertained. I don't want to think. I just want to have a good time. And so I will refer to that the most sciency of all action movies. 1997's Face-Off, where there's so much science in that movie that is not anything. Just, it's nothing. But it doesn't matter because we're having a good time. I bring this up because I asked Tessa where in this episode she wanted me to talk about time travel. 
and she said it was here. So here we go. And 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 before I say anything, Tessa doesn't know what I'm about to say because when we finished watching the movie last night, she was like, "So what do you?" I was like, "No, no, no, I cannot <laughs> talk about it until I have notes, until I've thought it through, and I'm ready now." Feel free to jump in where you like. There's a there's a lot happening here, but this is basically time travel 101. <sighs> so the first thing you need to know about time travel is that there are essentially two major forms of time travel that come up in popular culture. I am not a scientist, but I have studied the science related to time travel, you know, relativity, quantum physics, string theory, such that I can kind of have a decent idea of what I'm talking about. But at the end of the day, my concern is not science, it's popular culture and ethics. So if you know more than I do, good for you out there. <laughs> we talk about two basic ideas of time travel. The first one is the one we are most familiar with if you've seen any movie from the 80s and most of the 90s that deals with time travel. It's, it's called a couple of different things, but we'll call it single loop, single timeline, causation, causal loop. There's four names for it. Time travel. And this is the time travel where there is one timeline, and if you do anything in the past to the timeline, it will change everything. It will have that ripple effect. The things that we concern ourselves most with in the timeline, uh, this kind of time travel, is how we can mess up the timeline, or how, if we really play our cards right, we can affect it for the better. This is the kind of time travel that gets us the thing called the grandfather paradox, which Futurama just dunks all over, right? Do you want to say it, Tessa? I'm not going to take time travel advice from Mr. I'm my own grandfather. <laughs> and essentially, so it's often referred to as the grandfather paradox, but uh, you can also refer to it as the work paradox, the free lunch paradox, the bootstrap paradox, which basically says you cannot go back in time and tell your past self about something that hasn't happened yet so they are able to benefit from that thing that hasn't happened yet. Because if it hasn't happened yet, it never happened. So that's a paradox. The whole world and universe tears itself apart and we all die. So don't do that. <laughs> and of course that... Don't do a Back to the Future 2 is what you're telling me. Well, we'll get to that. But the whole point is, in this, in this single timeline theory of time travel, time travel is essentially impossible. How do I know? Because we would know, or we'd all be dead. And since neither one of those are true, we're good. And everything was the way that it was until quantum time travel came up. Quantum physics and then the idea of quantum time travel. The biggest example of quantum time travel that we know is the multiple timeline, multiple universe, parallel universe construct that Marvel is currently playing with in Phase 4 of the MCU. You have, uh, it's, it's the quantum mania from the uh, Ant-Man movie coming in the future. If you saw Loki, that is what they have been trying to studiously avoid, are those branching time paths, because they represent parallel universes. Are we having fun so far? I am. I love this, this will all be on the exam at the end. So, <laughs> takes notes. Let's talk about Days of Future Past's timeline. Remembering that we can really go with one of two 
theories here. We've got the we've got the the single loop or the the quantum multiple infinite numbers of universes. In 19 Okay, let me back up again one more time. One of the easiest ways to understand time travel is to look at it chronologically from a single character's point of view. So we're going to talk about Logan. In 1973, Logan joined Team X. Later that year, he quit Team X. We know this from Origins. We also know from Origins that in 1979, Weapon X happens. That's where he gets the adamantium. He does whatever he does between then and 2003 when Rogue finds him and sets off the events of the first film all the way through 2006 with The Last Stand. The next thing we know is that in 2013, Logan goes to Japan to work out his issues and fights a silver samurai and weird things happen. Two years later, in 2015, he is approached by Charles and Eric in the airport. And the next time we see him is eight years later in 2023, when Kitty sends him back to 1973. This, of course, is where the timeline diverges. But importantly, he goes back to 1973 before he joins Team X. So an earlier part of 1973 does the events of Days of Future Past. And we'll learn more about this later. But at some point before the events of X-Men Apocalypse, the next movie, Weapon X does happen. But it doesn't happen when it happened in the original timeline. And then in 2023, Logan wakes up only now remembering that the timeline has diverged. But the question is, what does he remember? See, for me, that's the most confusing part of this, is that I understand the mechanics of the time travel insofar as they are explained in the movie to us, but I don't understand if he changed the past, why he doesn't remember what happened since 1973. Like, you would think... Because he's been alive, he's been doing things since 1973. Why does he suddenly have like a gap in his memory, whereas everyone else remembers? Why does he remember the other timeline, whereas everybody else doesn't remember the other timeline? Elise, thoughts before I dive right back in? So, as I was, I was thinking before, they told me that he wasn't going to remember. So I was like, okay, he won't remember. Like, I didn't, I didn't think about it that much. But his consciousness left 2023, went to 1973, and then came back. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. No, no, no. That is the most reasonable explanation, exactly what you were saying. It's really about the consciousness and how and where and why that travels. Also, to clarify, we don't actually know how much he remembers or if he remembers anything. All we know is that he knows something is off and different. But Charles knows because he lived through the new timeline. All he knows is what Wolverine told him, which is that the timeline's different and we're going to change it, which is already problematic because it's a violation of that, that bootstrap paradox. It's why Doc Brown got so upset at Marty for writing that letter. Do you think that Charles kind of, like, gave him his, like, memories back in, like, a 
Charles way, but I'm also thinking in a Vulcan way, but in a Charles way. Like, do you think he, like, mind-melded him and was like, here's what happened, or he just explained it to him? Hypothetical. Well, right. And I think it's really interesting that in the absence of something that doesn't make any, in the absence of anything that makes sense, we try to do that. That's, that's what we're, we're really good at that, humans. Probably mutants too, I guess, since you're asking about, because <laughs> there's that old thing. So here's my answer. Here's what I've got for you. And it involves a little detour through one of my favorite movies, Back to the Future. One of mine also. If you've seen the Back to the Future trilogy, you can follow along and this will make complete sense to you. If not, I don't know, skip forward. I mean, you know. <laughs> I only watched it like two years ago, the first time. In order to talk about this, I want to talk about Jennifer Parker, Marty McFly's girlfriend. In 1985, Jennifer Parker is Marty McFly's girlfriend. Marty goes back from that 1985 back to 1955, changing the past, creating a new 1985 that we will call 1985 Prime. In 1985 Prime, his dad's not a loser. Biff is waxing the, the, um, the truck that Marty has that he was lusting over in the original 1985. And he and Jennifer are somehow miraculously still in a relationship that didn't change. In 1985 Prime, she's the exact same person she was in the original 1985, and yet she has no memory of the original 1985. At the end of the first movie, they go from 1985 Prime up to 2015, and that's where we get this started Back to the Future 2. She sees things, and they dump her back on her front porch, and what we later find out is 1985 Double Prime, because Biff went back to 1955 and messed with the future. So we're on our third version of 1985. Marty and Doc go back from 1985 double prime back to the original 1955 and when they fix what Biff broke, 1985 prime returns. Except it's not really 1985 prime at this point, it's 1985 triple prime because who knows what they changed inadvertently. And of course, at the end of Back to the Future 2, we find out that Doc gets sent back to 1885. Marty goes back to grab him. They do change the past, but somehow that doesn't miraculously alter the future in any way. Weird. Marty returns back to what he thinks is 1985 Prime to find Jennifer, who discovers that the 2015 she saw will never exist because that's how time travel and free will works. But wait, there's more. Because Doc returns, revealing that he has changed his past, present, and future with no apparent effect on 1985 Prime, which you will remember, which you will remember is actually 1985 Triple Prime, but just because he said it doesn't mean it happened, so we are now in 1985 Quadruple Prime. The point here is, Jennifer does not remember anything from the original 1985, but remembers everything that she observes. After that original divergence, she's not aware of things that happened when she was unconscious, but everything that she saw, she kept and retained from the divergence. At least this is where what she said a minute ago comes in. Logan's consciousness is returned to this 2023 prime 
where Scott is alive. It's really the worst timeline. (laughs) And his consciousness may or may not be intact. We don't actually know. But why? The easiest explanation that could possibly happen is that that's what Kitty Pride's mutant power allows to happen, which would have been such an easy explanation if they hadn't done one really foolish thing. We see the original 2023 wink out of existence. So we know that they disappeared. Like, you know, when the future, when the past was changed, that future went away. But because we saw that, we know that that can't be how Kitty Pride's power works because she was gone. Rogue was gone. We'll talk about Rogue in a minute. But basically, they showed us, they got too cute, and they showed us several things which completely destroy every single possible idea of time travel out there. And so, the only conclusion I have is that this makes no sense and is generally a terrible attempt at time travel logic. That being said, before I say this, for something to be a heist, do you think that they need to steal something or it could just be like getting something done? Because I felt very excited watching this and being like, oh, it's a time heist kind of thing, Mm. even though they weren't trying to steal something. But I still felt it felt heisty. As in like a movie sense where they're like trying to figure out how to do something, even if they weren't trying to steal something. Is so changing the timeline of it- always a heist? Kind of? Because mm. you're trying to steal a new future? Perhaps. Yeah. Maybe. Okay. You just, you just, I think you just proved my point. So I was just very, regardless of the, um, if it actually makes sense, I was just happy to see a time heist. Honestly, the most interesting part to me, and this was new in this particular cut. This was not in the original cut, but it is in the Rogue cut. The scene with the mutants at the beginning when they're originally talking about the time travel and Bishop and the crew talk about the ethics of going back in time and changing the future, knowing that in doing so, some of them may never be born. Some of them may have completely different lives or lives that don't, they they would be different people, basically. And we do see a little evidence of that at the end of the film, because we see that Iceman and Kitty are not together. He's with Rogue, like he is at the end of The Last Stand. So yeah, I I found that scene to be more interesting than anything else. The idea of what are the ethics of going back in time and potentially changing certain people or even making it so they would never be born. And and that's essentially the the biggest ethical consideration of time travel. If you're playing around with a single timeline, what gives you the right to determine what is best for everyone else? Which is of course a false question because you can't make that you can't possibly do what's best for everybody. Marty can do what's best for him by making his dad not a loser. Now, the only real practical consequence of that we see is that Biff is now a loser, which is fine because he's evil. (laughs) (laughs) But much like heat and energy and wealth, these things are all finite. And so for somebody else to have such good fortune, somebody else has to have bad fortune. 
They want us, Zemeckis and friends want us to assume that it's equal. The amount of Biff's bad fortune is equal to George McFly's good fortune, but you have no way of knowing that. And if you don't believe me, Goldie Wilson becomes mayor because Michael J. Fox, (laughs) sorry, because Marty McFly made it so. The very interesting thing about quantum time travel is none of this matters. Because quantum time travel, as it's most popularly discussed, is branching. So this terrible 2023 in a quantum scenario still exists. Those characters do not wink out of existence. They say, well, I guess we solved it for alternate world us and they all die. That's, that's, that's what would happen in the quantum thing. We actually have a reverse consideration of this ethics in, in Loki with um, the, the character who manifests himself as Kang. This, it's an alternate Kang. It's not the Kang, the one who monologues. It's basically a reverse version of that. Now, I do want to say before we move on, I'm not finished. Because if you know more about this movie than we do in terms of time travel, you're probably screaming, that's not what Singer said he was doing. I know he's wrong. We'll get to it. You know, it's already been like 30 minutes. We need to talk about sad Charles. (laughs) In the past, there will be a really sad Charles. I love sad Charles so much. What did you love about him? He's just brooding the whole movie and his hair. <laughs> he, is, he, is, he is rocking the 70s hair and the bell bottoms, those orange brown yeah. bell bottoms. Like he's he's got it. Yeah. But yeah, he's like so moody. A oh. lot of stuff has happened to him from the last time we saw him in first class. Like there's a little bit of depression over disability which is a little unfortunate but it's not the only thing he's depressed about like he's depressed about raven being with magneto he's depressed that magneto left him because he loves magneto i'm just throwing that out there he's depressed because all of his students got drafted into vietnam which honestly feels like the most depressing part of this entire movie that we kind of just glossed over a little bit what did you think of the medication he takes to be abled, but he is suppressing his powers as the side effect? My first thought is empathy towards him because when you're depressed, I, it's very hard to handle everyone else's emotions and feelings. And so I understand wanting to, from like a practical standpoint, not wanting to deal with that. and. Oh, your your no your friend Hank has, you know, a quick fix for that. So let's let's do it. So I get it from that standpoint, but from like a messaging, it's it's not great. <laughs> I I just thought it's it's like Hank's like I had I have a I have a medicine for that, so he's fine, so he's not sad about not being able to walk. And Tessa, your thing about Mystique doesn't really come up. It's it's just like I'm sad because the war. All right, dude, way to shorthand that Vietnam sucked. This is just you'd, good script writing here, people. Oh, jeez. Anyway, what we have here is a reverse let's kill Hitler. Boulevard Trask is evil, mustache twirling, genocidal, let's kill them all, evil. Played by Peter Dinklage. Played by Peter Dinklage. 
looked like he belonged in the 1970s. Like the hair, the mustache, everything. Fun fact, this is Peter Dinklage's third angriest role. His uh, number two, obviously being his breakout role in the station agent. And of course, he was at his most unhinged in Elf. Of course. Here we have him at the Peter Dinklage anger level of mild, which is above, resigned angry, which is really what Tyrion Lannister is. I mean, it's, 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 it's a whole thing. But basically, this is definitely an opposite let's kill Hitler. This is what happens if we prevented somebody being killed. And I know what you're thinking. You're supposed to prevent JFK from being assassinated. But Stephen King tells us, probably not, probably shouldn't do that. And anyway, that allows us to have a nice little punchline. You know you were thinking about JFK and why we shouldn't have killed him. Plot twist, it was Magneto all along. But anyway, let's make sure Raven doesn't kill Trask. Because if she kills Trask, the worst timeline will happen. Which is super fun. Because time travel tells us we kill the evil person and save the quote-unquote good person. This tells us save the evil person. Good times. What do you think? Side note, um, I just finished a book about Star Trek, the original series, and they were saying that for Star Trek II, which we all know as the Wrath of Khan, they were just in development, they trying to decide what they were going to have that movie about, and they almost decided to go with the time travel JFK story, and that would have <laughs> been horrible. And they realized they would have had to come up with, like, the future that that created um, after, and they realized that was a little too much pressure, so I'm kind of glad that they went with Wrath of Khan instead. I am always for less people getting murdered, so on that note, that was um, not killing Trask, you know, less people getting murdered is good. Yeah. But also, they do such a good job in this movie of selling us on what a terrible person he is. Like, I mean, that scene where Mystique is in, like, his super secret science experiment vault and finds all those pictures of mutants that she knows, that we know from first class, who have been been experimented on and are dead. Like, and she's crying. And, like, it really... They do a very good job in this movie of giving her a very clear motivation and for us to be like, no, like, this guy is a bad person and, like, he deserves to die, but we can't kill him because then the dark timeline will happen. Like, it... I will say, like, I agree with you about the, like, maybe killing isn't always the best answer, but they do such a good job of making us want her to kill him. No, right. And he's always... Every time they almost catch a mutant, he's like... I need them alive so I can do research on them. And it it just that it's that every time he talks about like experimenting on them, it skews me out so much. Well, and it's and it's very interesting because Singer and the folks who participate in this franchise have no trouble going to the well of Eric's backstory. They don't in this movie. And it's almost like it didn't occur to them what they were doing, or they would have done it much more ham-handedly. You know, a moment ago, you said you were in favor of the eventualities in which the least amount of people die. But that's just it for Trask. They're not people. 
And and so the whole reason he's fine with this wiping out every single one of them is he doesn't see them as people. That that dehumanization that he tries to put onto them is what makes it okay for him. And of all the things they could have just, you know, whacked us over the head with with a sledgehammer, Singer didn't choose to really make a big deal out of that. If you noticed it, you noticed it. And if you didn't, you didn't. But that's a very clear parallel. That's something, it's interesting you point that out because I didn't even think about it because as someone who has not read the comics, but I, I'm Jewish, I Eric's backstory is never far from my mind when he's on screen. Like that is something I think about all the time. I, of all the X-Men, I'm the most interested in him as a character and part of it is his backstory. Yeah, it's just something that's always on my mind with regard to him. Oh, and I think it's interesting that when the past Charles and the past Eric meet up and they explain everything to him, that Charles's first reaction is like, are you going to gloat because you were right? Like, the idea is, is that like the darkest time in the darkest timeline, he was right. Like this idea that like mm-hmm. humans will round all the mutants up and put them in, in camps and try to kill all of them. So there is sort of that like tension i guess as well of course magneto we find out believes that that timeline's inevitable that it'll always happen or at least past magneto thinks that so that's interesting well that's i mean that's the whole point right of his backstory he lived through the thing where he knew because he was there that there are these people who think that Whoever they are is better than some other group of, of people, or as the case may be, mutants. He knows it because he saw it. I mean, he is the most qualified to make that statement. But they don't seem to want to talk about that in this movie, and only this movie, for some reason. Well, we do get that offhanded comment, again, only in the road cut, where when Magneto, old Magneto, and Iceman go to save Rogue, and they break into Cerebro and she's being experimented on, tortured. And he set he does actually say, as he like, you know, levitates all the instruments, all the sharp instruments with his mind, he said he does say, like, I was I've been the one on that table. Let me show you how it feel what it feels like. So we do get like that right. line from him. But yeah, it's always like those small doses. We don't get the the flashback that we get in first class or at the beginning of the first X movie. And we're, we're actually mm-hmm. going to return to that well in yes, later movies as well. Exactly. You guys want to talk about something happier? Much, yes. <laughs> so this is the movie where we get Agatha's next door neighbor, Boner. <laughs> oh, wait, sorry. Quicksilver, not bitter. And why is he in this movie? I don't know. He just has a cameo. It's like, well, we wanted to do a cool thing. And, and, and they that's did it. a cool thing. Yeah, what? <laughs> but I it 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 really worked for me. Um, well, are you okay with the fact that he's not in the movie at all after that? Yeah, I don't care that much. So so okay, why is it good? Why is it funny? <laughs> um, I just very much enjoy the scene in the kitchen where all the food is just all over the place and everything is just slowed down for a minute. I. It's funny. Um, With time in a bottle playing. 
<laughs> yeah, the music is amazing. Uh, the one guy that he makes punch himself, I, I laugh every time. It's so dumb. Why you hitting yourself? It's always funny. Yeah, I mean, I once gave myself a like a black eye and a bloody nose, and it was funny the next day. Not necessarily that day, but <laughs> people saw it happen. It was bad, but um, yeah, it is very funny. I'm years later, I'm still laughing about it. So I think it's a great cameo. I mean. I agree. I think that it's funny. I think that Evan Peters is, his interpretation of Quicksilver is the best Quicksilver I've seen on the screen. And I am including Aaron Johnson's Quicksilver from the MCU, who was fine. But this particular version of Quicksilver is the closest to the comics. Like the idea that he's like, so like, it's not just his body that goes fast. It's his mind. Like he is like, always waiting for other people to catch up with where he is. He's not like a particularly smart character, but he's somebody who is just constantly doing all these things at the same time because he can do it. And that's just kind of where he is. And so I I thought that that was great. I thought the scene in the basement was great with them when they meet him. And Charles is just like, man, this guy is like a jerk. And I want to know, though, the one thing I do want to know is that Wolverine says, oh, well, because Wolverine is the one who brings him in because he's like, oh, I know a guy, except for he'd be like a kid now. I want to know that story. How did he and Quicksilver like meet each other in the future? Like, what is Quicksilver like as an adult? I wondered if I had missed something or if it just like wasn't said. Nope. Nope. Like in an there. Well, the reason why I thought that is because I think there's one. There's one movie, the movie where Logan goes to Japan. Like, I haven't seen that movie. So I just was like, oh, maybe it's in that movie I haven't seen. No Quicksilver. This is the first time we see Quicksilver in this franchise, in this version of the franchise. I love when I, like, think I wasn't paying attention, but I was, and just the information is not there. (laughs) It makes me feel less silly. Right. I mean, so, like, there's a movie. Yeah. I would also like to see the Woodwatch. I want to see the Hank Logan road trip movie yes. because apparently they're yes. apparently they're besties in the future, so that's going to be fun. Yes, I love Hank like a lot. But can it be Kelsey Grammer and Hugh Jackman? I don't want to see Kelsey Grammer in anything ever again. Oh, right. honestly. Okay, so <laughs> but um, yes, that would be fine. I guess. Okay, so we haven't talked about this yet. We've mentioned it because we couldn't help ourselves. This movie, you have to talk about it. I I understand. Not if you haven't seen it, which is what our lives were like before we actually watched the Rogue Cut, the original cut of this film. So uh, a handful of things that we've talked about are unique to the Rogue Cut, which if you were listening yesterday, you know that's what we watched. The essential thing of the rogue cut is that kitty gets tired and injured the whole thing is kitty can do this for wolverine but she can only do it for a short amount of time and then when he has you know his when he gets really you know i don't know pre pre to pre it's still ptsd but it's like pre-traumatic stress syndrome Right? Maybe. Maybe. Right. right. You see. So uh, (laughs) it's funny how that works. (laughs) You know, he accidentally, you know, the claws come out and he hits Kitty. And so basically the 
sum total of the plot that happens in the Rogue Cut is we go on a mission, we go on a side quest, as Tessa proclaimed when it happened, uh, maybe a little over halfway through the movie, where Eric and Bobby go back to the mansion to save Rogue, who is being held captive in Cerebro. And they br- previously presumed dead, I guess. Yes, previously assumed dead, and in the original cut of the movie, actually dead, probably. I don't know. Schrodinger's rogue. This is a rogue who has gotten her powers back, as was implied at the end of The Last Stand. She, as Tessa points out, has clearly become comfortable with her powers. So they, they save her, bring her back. She, she tags in for Kitty, and really that's it. I mean, that's, that's it. And so it's a subplot that gives you barely more than 10 minutes in the movie. And what's 10 minutes between friends, I guess? Well, Singer and Paquin are not friends, apparently, because they just cut the whole thing out. She receives star billing and is only in the movie for that one brief shot right before the opening credits. How? Do you feel about the additional context of this movie? How do you feel about Rogue and the Rogue cut? I felt like it, I kind of felt like it came out of nowhere um, when Bobby was like, I know someone who could help. Like, it just felt like it didn't really fit with, I don't get me wrong. I'm always happy to see Anna Paquin and Rogue, but it felt like it was out of nowhere. And I appreciated the other extra scenes, like, Tessa mentioned earlier when they were debating the ethics of the time travel and there's a couple other scenes where um where like Charles was debating with Logan on the plan like there was a couple other scenes like that they added that didn't have anything to do with Rogue but weren't in the original cut that I felt had more impact for me um that being said it was nice to see her Nixon swears that's that's one of the other additions (laughs) that Nixon swears oh yeah so there's two F words in this movie now instead of just the the one. Side note, do you think there's like a large market for actors who can impersonate Nixon in films? <laughs> I feel like I've seen that specific actor play him before, but I don't know if it's I've seen this movie too many times or if he's played Nixon before. <laughs> I mean, like, I just thought I about it for the first time watching this movie where I'm just like, <laughs> you know, it has to be a very specific type of person who can impersonate Nixon. But he does he does right. an all right job. I don't know. Like on the one hand, this wasn't the worst shooing in of a plot line that I've seen in this movie. We actually haven't talked about the one that I think is worse in this movie yet. I don't know if we will talk about it, but because it's not a big deal. I mean, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Like this is just not rogue to me. I love Anna Paquin. I think she's great. Um, I think she could have played this character really well if they had given her a chance and actually given her a personality. This version of her is less annoying than the ones in previous ones because, like Sam mentioned, she seems a lot more comfortable with her powers. She seems like she control it, control it a lot better. She immediately takes Kitty's power and is able to use it, which they don't explain. It's because she's also taking Kitty's memories at this point. Um, and so she, that's how she's able to instantly use Kitty's power. It's not just that she gets the power. She knows how to use it. Again, this call could have been way more interesting. I do really like that they gave Eric more to do in this subplot. We get to see him do a lot more cool stuff with the metal with McKellen, um, who always plays Magneto a little bit more queer than Bassbender. And so I appreciate that. And also it kind of raises the stakes a bit because... Even though in this movie, just like in the comics, we see all these X-Men die, and that's supposed to, like, 
really hit hard, right? Like these characters who we would normally assume are safe because they're in the future, they can kind of kill them and, and make this like increase the pathos of the moment. It still hit pretty hard when Bobby dies in that scene. Like I was like, oh my God, they killed Bobby. Like even though it's kind of implied yeah. in the original cut that he dies with the other ones in the future, like it still was like really hard actually seeing him die in that scene. So Elise pointed out a little while ago that it it felt shoehorned in this rogue plot, and it really does. And I've been trying to come up with an explanation. Here's one. Somebody, Singer, Kinberg, I don't know, said, you know what we should do? You remember that thing in The Last Stand where, like, Rogue and Bobby are a thing and then Maybe he's a thing with Kitty instead, and they're jealous, and it's a love triangle, and love triangles are fun, especially when two women are jealous of each other and they have to work together anyway. We like that, right? Let's do that. Let's bring that back. Like, there are lots of things we're not going to do that we're just going to leave behind because we're going to retcon the entire first trilogy, but before we go, let's do this. I really do hate that. It's even funnier knowing that Bobby Drake is gay in the comics. Like, he is canonically gay. Yes. And so it is so funny. It hadn't happened yet when they did this film. Um, He hadn't come out in the comics. Oh, got it. But it is really funny now watching this and being like, he's totally gay. It's so weird seeing them, like, contrive this, like, heterosexual love triangle between the three of them. So let's, let's, before we go back to the past and get to the climax of the movie... Let's stay with Future Squad for a minute. Let's, let's talk about these, these folks. This is the most amount of time we've spent. And by most, I mean like, what, four, five minutes total? With Elliot Page's Kitty Pride. Now, we, we, we've talked a fair bit. We're doing like an extended rogue cut version of the podcast today because Tessa was worried I wouldn't bring the energy but she really underestimated how much I like to talk about time travel. So it's been almost an hour at this point, but we haven't even talked about Tessa's central issue with this story yet, and it does involve Kitty Pride. so perhaps you would like to talk about that and Elliot Page? I don't know. We have plenty of hard drive space. We can go for a while. <laughs> I mean, my issue with this movie... I do like this movie. The spoiler alert for in the end when we talk about whether we liked it or not. I liked it a lot better this time around than I did the first time that I saw it. But my my central issue with it is actually does have to do with Kitty Pride, and it has to do with Logan as well, actually. And here's why. I understand things have to change in adaptations. A lot of the adaptations I have seen that are really great don't try to stick very closely to their source material. Um, some of them do. Dune, for an example, the most recent one that just came out, sticks very closely to its source material and does a fantastic job. But others, they don't, and they're great. We're going to talk about Logan. Logan does not stick very closely to its source material. So we'll, we'll talk about that here in a couple of episodes. I think what makes me angry about this one is that they had a chance to do something different than what they had done before, but they chose not to because of production or studio popularity reasons. So in the original comics, it is actually Kitty Pride who goes back in time. She is not the person who sends the Logan back in time. She is the one who sent back in time. Time travel has never been one of Kitty Pride's powers. That is not something that she can do. But 
who does send her back in time is Franklin Richards, who those of you who are comic book fans will recognize that name as the son of Reed Richards and Sue Storm Richards, two of the members of the Fantastic Four. So Franklin Richards is a huge deal in the comics. He's a mutant, but he also has his parents' powers. He's Omega level. So he's as powerful as Charles, as powerful as Jean Grey. He is like a really big deal. And the thing in the comics is, is that they all band together and they all like, it takes them a long time to put this plan into motion for them to send Kitty Pride back in order to warn the X-Men about Mystique killing Trask. The reason I'm angry about them changing it this way isn't because I don't like, it's not because I don't like Logan. It's not because I don't like Hugh Jackman as Logan. It's just this franchise became so Logan-centric at this point that basically people were like, oh, Logan's the most popular X-Man. We should just like make every movie with him as the central character. And to me, that's fundamentally not the X-Men. The X-Men is about an ensemble cast. You're supposed to focus on different members of the team as you go. They all have their own stories. They all have their own issues. And I thought it could have been really interesting if they had focused on Kitty Pride, who is a wonderful character in the comics, and who, and honestly, they haven't done a cent- uh, female-centric X-Men storyline at this point either. And so that could have been also very interesting. So that's my little, like, I'm really pissed about that particular moment in this particular movie the other thing that i'm really pissed about is actually in the road cut they like sandwich in this scene with mystique where she comes back to the x mansion and sleeps with hank or like seduces hank and almost sleeps with him just so she can destroy cerebro only for them to figure out where she's going three minutes later like to me i was like why is this here why is this even a scene otherwise loved the movie (laughs) So just on that scene with Hank, I don't mind the scene with Hank because I did always feel like they had chemistry for me in the movies, but the rest of it with the destroying the Cerebro and then finding her anyway, that part makes no sense. But I did enjoy the actual scene where, like, I probably would have enjoyed it more if you, like, definitely knew they slept together, but it's fine. In my head canon, they did. (laughs) I I had something about Franklin Richards, you know, his his powers, his parents' powers. So he's as smart as his dad, but as not annoying as his mom. Because, you know, his dad's kind of insufferable. So, like, oh that amount of intelligence without being a humongous jerk, not bad. And, and of course, the other thing, too, is um, making Logan the central figure of the series is going to be really cool in the next movie, X-Men... Wolverine's origin story for the third time featuring the fabulous fashionista apocalypse, right? I mean, that's what that movie is. But lest we do the same thing Singer and Friends did, let's actually talk about Elliot Page. I'm going to ask you a second time. What did you think about that portrayal? What did you think, Elise, of Elliot Page in this? I don't know what Kitty Pride's character is supposed to be, I guess, is part of it. Like, because they obviously didn't show the, the, the correct thing from the comics, but also I haven't read it. But I enjoyed, I enjoyed his performance. Um, it was a little jarring to me to see Elliot with long hair again. But otherwise, you know, I enjoyed, um, I enjoyed it. I wish they had given him more to do. Same. Uh, yeah, I, I just think that this movie would have been really interesting if if Kitty Pride had been the one to go back. And Elliot Page is such a great actor that 
I mean, he right. could have carried this movie. Like, if you had given him, like, enough material and enough to do. I mean, I think I had heard it before that Kitty Pride is really the one that goes back. And it, it does feel very much like we can't have a girl character be the central thing because no one's going to go see that, which we all know is not true. Um, it's X-Men. It's, you know, you know, there's always going to be haters, but who who cares <laughs> for those folks? Yeah. Um, but yeah, that would have been an interesting movie for sure. Speaking of cool-looking dudes who are just plot devices, we also have another big-deal mutant who is wasted, Bishop. Any any thoughts on our boy Bishop? I'm forgetting who Bishop ah, is. There you go. <laughs> That's how much they weren't in the movie. So, yeah, this is my other complaint, I guess, is that this is what we were talking about before with X-Men Last Stand and Origins. Wolverine, X-Men. I always say those three words in a different order every single time. (laughs) I feel sometimes like they're like, oh, wouldn't it be so cool to have Bishop in this movie? But then they don't actually have time to do anything with him, even though he's such a great character. And then we never see him again. Like, so like Bishop is like a big deal in the comics. Uh, I mean, we get to see him do some cool stuff with his powers. It's cool to watch uh, Storm charge him up with her lightning. That was cool. I um I googled Bishop as we were talking because some some of the um future characters I didn't remember their names, but I do remember that's the person that Kitty had sent back, whose consciousness Kitty had sent back in time previously to warn them whenever the Sentinels came. So, but yeah, I did enjoy that charging scene as well. Yeah, and and of course we haven't mentioned Halle Berry yet, whose character Storm is also there at the end. Halle Berry's pregnant, which is why she's not in this very much. I assume the folks who were portraying Blink, Sunspot, and Warpath were not pregnant, though. So why do we see so little of them? There are other cool new future characters. You want to talk about them? Sunspot is is the not evil person who shoots flames. Blink is the one who makes with the little portals. And and Warpath is the other person there. Portals is the word I was looking for when I was writing my new notes and said bloop around. <laughs> I, I like bloop around. It works. Some, anyway. Sometimes the brain doesn't work, but bloop around. I love the move. I want to say it's near the end of the film where she, where Blink does like the three portals. Like, I don't remember who it is. Is it Bishop who jumps in and like, she she like does a portal down, so he jumps in and gets like like down momentum, and then she does one on the side, so he like he jumps down and then comes out and like hits the sentinel. I loved that. No, it was Colossus. I'm sorry, it was Colossus because he was in this movie too. Yeah, like I love that because it reminded me so much of the game Portal, where you're basically doing that the entire game. You're like doing different portals and like trying to like shoot yourself across chasms and so on. I love Blink. I think she's great. It is worth noting that both Blink and Warpath, who is a Native American mutant, are portrayed in the show Gifted, which was, it started airing in 2017. Blink is played by Jamie Chung, and Warpath slash Thunderbird is played by Blair Redford, who is actually Native American. And those characters get a lot more development and treatment in that show than they do in this film. Can you imagine if this movie was a two-parter? And the entire first movie was the future. 
and ended with their decision to send Wolverine back to the past, like how much development we could have gotten in these characters and how much fun it would have been. Oh, well. Okay, let's, let's, let's bring this home. Let's land this X-Jet. The big climax of the movie, of course. Magneto lifts a baseball stadium and uses it to encircle the White House, stations the <laughs> Sentinels that he's taken over on the top, and just for the I'm losing count of the number of times he does Mystique dirty, does her dirty. So, I mean, this is really a, a, a climax that is best summed up, curse your sudden but inevitable betrayal. I don't know, this might be the weakest part of the movie for me, but it's just like, oh, okay, I guess we had to do a thing. We have a CGI budget, <laughs> let's ha- use it. What do we think? I had in my notes, I had in my notes, Eric's gonna Eric. <laughs> that's it, that's it, like um, all the cliches. I thought, I thought the CGI in this movie was just not great. A lot of, especially the f- parts with the flames and the fire and stuff, it just looked really fake to me. Um... But yeah, Eric's gonna Eric. I did get a little teary at the end end. Um, but that's also like, you know, it doesn't take much <laughs> to make me teary. But like, not to skip ahead, but I it got teary at like Logan seeing how seeing how happy Logan was that everyone was alive. Or the people that were alive were alive. I think this movie Despite the end being the weaker part where it's just like, oh, we're just going to resolve everything now because we can't keep going. This is a movie. Like, we have to stop somewhere. (laughs) I think this movie, though, does such a great job of continuing the through line that we've talked about a couple of movies ago with Professor X and Magneto. The scene in the plane when they're, like, screaming at each other about... Like Charles saying that he would, yeah, that Magneto abandoned him, and Magneto saying, No, like you abandoned us. Like, I thought that was such great acting on both McAvoy and Fassbender's part. And I also felt like there's just so much depth of emotion between those two characters, even though they have such stark ideological differences to each other. And I felt like this movie, especially at the end, when Charles lets him go, because he's like, Yeah, like they're just gonna kill you, or they're just gonna like do something horrible to you if you stay. I don't know. I thought that that was really well developed, especially because it was intercut with those scenes with McKellen and Stuart, who we know are like really good friends in real life. Yeah. You know, especially when McKellen says like, we wasted all those years fighting each other. Like it's just such a like great culmination of that relationship, even though of course it goes on in other films. Like to me, this felt the most like, okay, like this is the best portrayal of this relationship I've seen. I do feel like they benefited, for me, by having their relationship shown in the other films also. Like, I would wonder someone who had never seen an X-Men, like, watching just this one, which I think would be an interesting choice, but also how they would feel about it. But for me, like, having seen their relationship in the original movies and then also, you know, seeing them meet in um, First Class and all that, like, it really... I completely agree with you, and I really enjoyed the, like, split between, you know, the old cast and the new cast and kind of going back and forth. It really it really worked well. I think that is one of the strengths of this movie is the real, as you said, the payoff of one of the things they really did build somewhat successfully, the relationship between the two of them. Now, of course, it's sad that that's over after this movie. You know, no more of that. But you know what's not over? 
after Eric, you know, wraps the rebar through and around Wolverine and throws him in the Potomac, I guess. You know, at the end, we see Stryker dragging him out. We're like, it's Weapon X. Weapon X is going to happen. It's going to happen. I knew what's going to happen next. It's Weapon X. (gasps) Wait, that's Mystique. Weapon X isn't going to happen. That's great. Well, of course, it's not going to happen. If it happened there, we couldn't do it in the next movie. Back to the future. Everything is awesome, except for Cyclops being alive. But (laughs) Gene's back. Bobby's back. Everybody's happy. Wolverine teaches history. Everything's awesome. <laughs> I want to take Logan's history class. I think it'd be fascinating, <laughs> but I also want to know how. Do you have to take like classes to be a teacher there? Like, it just seems like he invites his friends to teach classes. Like, are they accredited? I mean, like, I do have. To, too close. Too close, Tessa. Anybody. That hurts. I don't like that. <laughs> Yeah, don't. I don't want to be insult anyone, but I do feel that there are different uh, there are different requirements for a public schools and private this schools. Is, this is coming dangerously close to Doctor <laughs> Quinn territory. Excuse me. You can definitely some cut of us this if earned you need that to. degree, right? You can definitely cut me saying that if you'd like, <laughs> but like you know, I'm very pro public school, so the whole you know whatever accessibility, um, Tessa. Yeah, that's saying. It is really interesting. It's experiential I do learning. I also you want to learn from those who do, so, who know, okay. who've experienced. Pedagogy so, really isn't the most important thing here. <laughs> it's about learning how to control your powers. It's 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 really a vocat situation, Tessa. Not not I, not like a college. Pro- just, come on, man. I would take a history of Logan's life class. Like I would well, want I mean, him like, to just like listen it. to him tell stories about exactly. Yeah. I feel like Twice. there's I Twice. I would watch a movie that is literally just the day-to-day operations of the school. Like no no world saving, <laughs> no sky beams, nobody gets attacked. It's just them trying to make it through like one day of school with all of these kids and all of these like X-Men trying to be teachers as their day job like 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 does professor x just keep sending memos to wolverine to stop teaching the kids about like the different languages that they can swear in like what's the what's the payoff here (laughs) okay first of all i think wolverine would teach them ways to get out of you just slept with someone who's married's um (laughs) bedroom (laughs) like how to get out of that situation how to climb out the window but yeah, I think you just created a teen drama and I want to watch mean, right? it. right? Yes. Would watch. Would Disney watch. Plus, call us. It would probably. Don't yeah. call any yeah. of these people. <laughs> call us. We got you. Roll credits. We're all done. Except, of course, this is a Marvel movie. We're not done. Oh, look. Trask is in the same prison cell Magneto was. How droll. Oh, wait. We're not done. Something's happening in ancient Egypt. Do we care? I don't remember that. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm not kidding. I I mean, if you read the comics, that last scene would have been a big deal. Like, I remember going, oh, my God, they're doing Apocalypse, who is, of course, like this huge villain. But if you didn't read the comics, you would have no idea what they were referring to. So... Was it like an after credit scene or was it just at it the end? It was at of the, the end of the credits. Oh, I didn't I stopped you didn't watching. You are you I are a remember. Marvel noob then. Come on. 
You always stay till the end. It was just so it was mostly I'll be honest, it was last night and I was really tired. Yeah, that'll happen. (laughs) And I like my brain was not reminding me to watch. It's just as well. I yeah. It's just as well. That's fine. (laughs) And we're not gonna talk about apocalypse now. Uh, We'll be talking about it day after tomorrow. That's a movie I've seen. (laughs) Okay. It's time for astonishing facts and I have some doozies. Facts, facts, facts. You know, we've talked about old Eric and old Charles, their relationships, and how Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen are so convincing because they're friends. You know, they're not only friends, and they're not only colleagues acting on the screen, they're also colleagues acting on stage. In fact, When Singer approached them to reprise their roles for this movie, not only were they surprised to be asked because they thought McAvoy and Fassbender had it, they were kind of busy doing a play called Waiting for Godot. I called this Waiting for Singer. You know, the (laughs) difference between Godot and Singer is you, you, you want Godot to show up. I've never seen any iteration of Godot. First of all, I want to see that play because I bet you they were great in it. And second of all, if you haven't seen Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen playing the newlywed game, I need you to Google Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen play the newlywed game. It's delightful. I have not seen that, so I will be doing that. I will be doing the Googling. (laughs) All right. uh, A little fun headcanon blurring the lines between fiction and reality before we dive right back into time travel. As you might know, or as was heavily hinted in the film, Eric is Quicksilver's father. Based on the actor's ages, Quicksilver was born when Eric was about 11 years old. So that's, um, that's some real mutant powers right there. Anyway. <laughs> that's a little icky. Going back to time travel, I told you earlier that Brian Singer thought he had outsmarted everyone who had ever studied time travel before. How did he do that? He asked James Cameron. No, really, he did. The Terminator? He asked, because, because, I guess Stephen Hawking wasn't available that day. I guess, I don't know, I guess nobody else but Jim was available that day. He was probably 17 years in pre-production for... Whatever movie at that. Oh, it was actually Avatar 2, the one he's still in pre-production for. Oh, my God. Those movies are never going to come out. I'm convinced. I was just about to say I'm convinced they are never well, coming out. I actually heard somebody say, and this is really on point, in an alternate universe, they've all come out. And about as many people cared. <laughs> so, but, but okay. So I've teased you enough. Let me tell you why Brian Singer thinks this approach to time travel works. Okay, You may or may not be familiar, if you've read Stephen Hawking's Brief History of Time, or actually, I don't know, you're a physicist, or if you watch The Big Bang Theory, you know a little bit about string theory, and by what I mean when I say a little bit, you know it's called string theory. I'm not going to tell you about string theory because it hurts. Hurts my head. Not Brian Singer's, though. Inside that pretty little head. This is what he had to say. The principle I looked at is this theory that until an object is observed, it really hasn't happened yet. 
the time traveler whose consciousness travels through time I call the observer. And until the observer returns to where he traveled from, the result hasn't occurred yet. So he can muck about in the past, and it isn't until he snaps back that the new future is set. As a result, we're able to have parallel action, and there's an underlying tension because there's always that threat. Wolverine's consciousness could return and leave the world in an even darker place. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'd like to tell you that that's the biggest problem Brian Singer had around this time this around the time that this film was released, but we know it's not. Let's not talk about that. Instead, let's talk uncanny stats. So we're not going to f- compare this to the previous film, The Wolverine, because it doesn't exist anymore. It got retconned. One of the best movies in the franchise was immediately retconned. Seriously. I mean, so was you know, so were the worst movies, but that's not really the point. The point here is compared to First Class, which was budgeted at 160 million, this movie was 200 million. I assume they paid Anna Paquin 40 million and they didn't use her, so it was really a wash. That's what I assume. Anyway, so 40 million dollars more budgeted. What's our return on investment? Opening weekend, First Class made 55 million domestic. Days of Future Past made 90 million. Sounds like we're on track for something good. Something real good. First Class's total box office was 353 million. I did a double take when I saw that Days of Future Past's total box office was 746 million. This movie was successful. What was it successful against? Godzilla, Tessa. Tessa! I my name like I was going to disagree with you. Yeah, the X-Men beat Godzilla. They beat Kaiju's Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore as well in Blended. I've literally never heard Nothing of that movie. Nothing about no. Adam Sandler being a Kaiju? No. Or Drew Barrymore being a Kaiju? No. What about Zephron? I did see Neighbors. Right. And then number five, that... Lasagna-loving cat in his second turn at the Amazing Spider-Man at number five. Or so I've been told. I don't actually believe that Andrew Garfield made Spider-Man movies. I don't think that's real. I don't think that's real. Much like Singer's poor take on the string theory, if I, if I don't acknowledge its existence, it was really never real. I never observed it. Please take the mic away from me, Tessa. <laughs> all new, all different! So in the all new, all different segment, I have two recommendations for you today. Unlike the Silver Samurai storyline from yesterday, I do really recommend the comics that this is based off of. Like I said, Days of Future Past, which is Uncanny X-Men issues number 141 and 142. It is a fairly short read, but it is a very poignant read. Very, very good. Again, focuses on Kitty Pride being sent back to warn the X-Men of Mystique and Destiny. That was a character that did not make it into this movie. Destiny, Mystique's lover, longtime lover, who is actually the big bad in this storyline. Fun fact. I also really recommend the episode of Star Trek The Original Series that Hank McCoy is watching during the scene that was added in during the Rogue Cut in his, like, I don't know, what would we call that? His... Central operation, his nerddom palace. 
That's in the regular oh, version too, okay. actually. Yeah, I watched the regular one in February, and I definitely tweeted in February about that scene existing. Do you remember which episode so. it is that he's watching? No. No, I forgot to look I it think up. It, I think but, it's Tomorrow is Yesterday, yeah. which is from season one, mm-hmm. because they have the clock counting backwards in that one. I believe that is correct. We can confirm. Uh, I love I love time travel in Star Trek. I just watched a time travel Voyager like right before we recorded. Has this been an episode of Sam Watches Star Trek? We snuck one in. <laughs> All right, it's time for us to change the future by doing something that makes way more sense than this movie and spend a really long time doing it. But 13 days of X-Men will be back tomorrow to go full meta. When we watch Deadpool, watch along with us, tweet at us, email us, let us know all your miraculous mutant thoughts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at monkeybacklog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. And visit our website, monkeyoffmybacklog.com. Elise, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Elise underscore Tendi, E-L-Y-S-E underscore T-E-N-D-I. And you can find my podcast on Twitter and Instagram. I should probably say what it is, right? Um, I have a Deep Space Nine podcast called Pod Wraiths. Um, we're at Pod Wraiths um, on Twitter and Instagram, P-O-D-W-R-A-I-T-H-S. Thank you. You can find Tessa on Twitter at Suela Tessa, and you can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9. Our theme song is Jingle Bells by Scott Holmes and can be found on scottholmesmusic.com. That theme song is the gift that keeps on giving. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Happy holidays, and get that monkey off your back, bub.